Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis. Glad to be here speaking to the world from our glassed-in studio here in the fabulous Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. We have a great show tonight. We're going to be talking premium vinegars. Premium vinegars. That was easy for me to say, and what how they're say? made. Wasn't and, it premium? And premium. also, we're Am gonna I premium. Uh, yeah, premium. It sounds like premium to me. It sounds like premium to okay. me. And we're gonna be taking you on a walk into the vineyards of northern France for tastes and talk of fine French wines. Our guests tonight are Daniel Lieberson. He is America's self-proclaimed vinegar king. I don't know where his kingdom is. I'm almost positive that was not written down. Yeah, yeah. He's the owner also of Lindera Farms, and also all the way from Alsace is our new friend Jean-Claude Riflet, uh, who is the proprietor of Domaine Riflet. It's a 400-year-old traditional family wine business in Alsace, and we are going to be talking about and tasting his fabulous wines. I would say world-famous wines. Perhaps even more famous than the Vinegar King. I don't know. I'm I don't thinking, know. I feel like I'm a thinking, gauntlet has been I'm, thrown. I'm thinking I, that's I, I a possibility. I what he does for a living. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, why don't we start with Jean-Claude, because he's got a plane to catch or something, right? No, he has a dinner to go to. He just got off the plane. A dinner? Yes. You're leaving us for a dinner? How dare you, sir? Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, you're hungry, probably. Um, why don't we start with, you You know, give us, if you would, the, the, the history of the vineyards and all that goes back several hundred years and you your family's been in the business and own this land for back in the 1800s am i correct no it's gone back further okay why don't you tell us hello to everyone Mm -hmm. uh that's true that uh the record our records are tracking back to 1609 so we just have a little bit more than 400 years of experience behind us but of course uh the, the, I would say the modern history of our state starts in the middle of the 19th century. That's where I got <laughs> yeah. the 1800s. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about sort of the history of the vineyard and the grapes you're growing. Let's just give people a little bit, because it's a very well-known domain, but let's talk about sort of the history of the wines and, and how they've grown to where they are today. Well, uh, as I said, we are, it's a family company since uh, s- such a long time. Uh, nowadays, uh, we are involved in it uh, with my wife, my two sons as well. And uh, the estate is stretched on about uh, 24 hectares. Uh, that means... I believe uh, there's some cremant in our yes, future here. Uh, very nice sound. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, which means uh, 24 hectares, that's about uh, 55 acres, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that when you are talking with a French winemaker, even if I dislike the you word... You don't like the term winemaker, correct? Right. Uh, right. Uh, the second word in a conversation goes immediately after terroir. And that's worth uh, for Alsace because uh, we have a huge diversity of different type of soil. And even on our estate, uh, you must imagine that the 24 hectares are stretched on about uh, 70 different blocks. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, very tiny blocks on four different type of soils, uh, different exposure uh, to the south, to the east. And well, that, I, well, let me ask a question. At that size, are you considered a boutique winemaker? Because 55 acres, if you compare it to what some of the huge... To Gallo. You know, you know, yeah. Well, get Gallo or Mondavia, those guys, you know, the supermarket wines, some of them. Shall we say salut? Santé. Oh. <laughs> à la bonne vôtre. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's go. do it. Come All on. right. So, uh, but is that, I mean, would you classify yourself as sort of in the artisanal boutique wine business still? Well, uh, mm. yes and no, because, you know, even with 24 hectares, uh, we are by far not the smallest one in Alsace. Uh, and the structure of uh, the Alsatian uh, viticulture uh, is in the hand of uh, a huge amount of small companies. Huh? So, uh, for example, uh, by our volume, we are ranking among the 50 largest in, Al in Alsace. Uh, wow. So. But once again, uh, that's interesting because... Uh, with our terroir concept in France and in Europe, even if you are a, quite a tiny company, huh? we are less than 10 people working in it, uh, you, are, you can play on the world market because of the identity of the wines itself, mm -hmm. uh, which are going much more toward the terroir than just the plain grape varietals. Well, so let's talk about the terroir because given the size of your acreage, you clearly, I assume, picked out different plots of land based on that terroir, right? You didn't just say, oh, here's some land, let's take it. Were you looking for certain qualities from that? Sure, but, you know, uh, if I have the opportunity to talk about terroir, uh, the, the first thing is to define what is a terroir, the mm -hmm. concept of terroir. I like terroir. it when he says the word better than when you say it. What? Terroir. 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 With my Jersey <laughs> accent. Yes. No, it is definitely not a French accent. I'm uh, not even going to pretend. Yeah. Actually, what is terroir? Terroir is a concept mm -hmm. that unites four elements. Uh, first, you have a place. Uh, and by a place, I, under, I mean a uh, type of soil. It can be uh, limestone, granite, uh, volcanic. Uh, so a place. But in the place, there is also the, the, the local uh, uh, exposure. Uh, mm -hmm. It can be south-faced, east-faced, and so on. The so wind, that, the sun. Yeah, that's the place. And the climate, of mm -hmm. course. Yeah. And then you have the second element, which is exactly the climate, uh, even the microclimate. Then the third element, that's a, a plant, uh, an agricultural product, uh, in our case, of course, the grapes, but mm -hmm. it can be, uh, I don't know, milk to produce certain kind of cheese and so on, uh, or chestnuts from Grenoble, for example. And the fourth element of the terroir, that's the human influence. And under human influence, we mean the know-how, of course, mm -hmm. but especially also the history of the place and the culture of the place. And now, if you put all these four elements together, uh, the soil, the climate, the plant, and the human influence, you get something hell unique that cannot be relocated anywhere else in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. It's definitely attached to a certain place. And that's really the strength of uh, our appellation AOC concept that we have in, in France, in Europe, and of course in Alsace. And Alsace is especially interesting because it's 
for sure the wine region in France that has the largest diversity of soils. It does, but I think most people think when they hear of wines that are Alsatian, they think of Riesling. That's just what... I just think a lot of people in the United States... Well, that's States, marketing, probably. That's marketing. I mean, in the United States, I think that's where most people's heads go. But, you know, you're like, we just poured a beautiful Cremant. What Cremant did we just pour? It's a, it's a Brut, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a blend of uh, Pinot, Pinot Blanc, and Pinot Gris. Mm. But let me come back. Your, your question is very interesting, because nowadays, Alsatian wines are popular through their grape varietals. Mm -hmm. But you know that... That's a tradition which is not so old than this. Uh, you know that because of our geographical location, uh, Alsace uh, went back and forth between France and Germany and so on. And if we go to our, through our history, uh, until the end of the 19th century, Alsace wines were sold and marketed throughout France and Europe. Mm -hmm. Exactly by the same way, like today, the Burgundians or the Rhone Valley or the Champagne or Bordeaux, they were named after the name of the village or the terroir. Mm -hmm. And it's only at the end of the 19th century, when we became under German management, that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That is very generous. Yeah, that is very generous, <laughs> exactly. Nicest way of putting it ever. But yes, go ahead. Okay. I mean, they were uh, on the way to Belgium, so they right. might as well, you know. Then suddenly, from, uh, from a northeast uh, wine region, we became a southern uh, wine region. Mm -hmm. And then imagine at the same time also, at the end of the 19th century, all over Europe, uh, we had this industrial revolution. And more and more people left the countryside uh, and went to cities or sure. to the coal mines and so on and so on. And of course, these people, they, they drank a lot of wines. Mm. And uh, at that time, the quality was not the point. Huh? The, the point was enough volumes. Volume. Quantity, yeah. right. And at the same time also, uh, you had the railway uh, network stretching out all over Europe. Uh, they didn't strike like these days in France, huh? but okay. And uh, so in Alsace, because we were the southest wine region from Germany, we were just asked to produce wine in huge quantities with low alcohol. And these wines were dedicated to be blended with German wines. And then it made sense to go after the pure grape varietals because blending a Riesling from Alsace with a Riesling from Pfalz, maybe, mm -hmm. at the end, it's still Riesling. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we... And at that time, it was very funny. Alsace was to, German, to, to the German wines what Algeria was to the French red wines. <laughs> uh, just provide volumes, uh, that's it. And unfortunately, uh, when we returned, we recovered French at the end of the 19th century. I always say uh, we were never occupied, uh, we were always liberated. Uh, and <laughs> so uh, we kept this tradition of uh, grape varietal, pure grape varietal varietals. And okay, that was fine, uh, that made good business for years and years. But nowadays, with the globalization, it's uh, an inconvenient because uh, you can grow Riesling or Pinot Blanc or Pinot Gris wherever in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the competition is really tough. 
Uh, and nowadays we are more and more producers who are coming back, uh, who are closing this 100-year uh, grey parental dictatorship uh, to, come, to come to much more terroir, uh, which is more interesting. Uh, it brings more deepness uh, and uh, it's, uh, how to say, it's much smarter to mm -hmm. talk about a place about an identity of a soil and so on than just about the great another wrestling well, right let right. me ask you about uh, i can't say winemaker when you're making the wine we have a, a friend here that owns a, a a vineyard and his whole philosophy is basically the wines are made in, in the vineyard on the vine that the wine, you know the, the maker of the wine not the winemaker of course is is really there to just uh Uh, have as little input as possible and let the the grape and the wine you know become themselves is that yeah exactly but let me tell a little about uh, organic uh, our estate is 100% uh, organic certified not biodynamic huh, but mm -hmm. organic and uh, for us uh, it is now since uh, 2014 okay 2014 uh, yeah, but you weren't for a very long time And then you came back to it because you were right. originally you were of course of course uh, like everywhere. So, so why go back to organic? What's what's what because makes it so important? Exactly because of the terroir. Uh, mm -hmm. We consider that uh, organic farming is the best tool to express the terroir. And how can I express the terroir? You know, uh, if you consider uh, a plant uh, or a fruit, a tree, or mm -hmm. whatever, a plant. 95% of the, the energy and the constituents of a grape, for example, comes from the air, uh, from the four elements, the fire through the sun, mm -hmm. uh, the, the water, the carbon, uh, and uh, the nitrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is atmosphere, and that represents 95% of the constituents. But... We are breathing the same air all around the world. We, are, we have the same rain. Uh, we have the same sun. So if you produce only this, what I call, carbonic wines, they can be relocated. Mm -hmm. uh, because 95% of the constituent comes from the atmosphere, which is universal. And you have only 5% of the constituents who are coming straight from the rocks, from the soil. Uh, So, if you talk about the terroir, and if you want a link, a, a, a strong link to the terroir, of course, you need to manage your vineyards in order to get the minerals pulled up from the soil uh, to the wines. And you can do this only by organic production. Okay. I mean by preserving the, the life in your soil, uh, the little worms, uh, the any kind of insects uh, which are living there, microbes, fungi, and so on. And all together... Uh, But is taking the, the chemical additives out, which, or, or, you know, there's so much... It, does that make organic grape growing that much harder? Uh, I mean, the, the chemicals just are killing the life in the soil. Mm -hmm. And then it's... Well, it's maybe a little bit uh, too difficult to explain just like this uh, mm -hmm. on the radio, but uh, to get 
uh, on a plant you you have on the on the little roots you have a little microscopic uh, fungus which is growing and it's a symbiosis between the the plant and uh, this mushroom yeah and this little mushroom can uh, pull up the minerals uh, the magnesium the copper the the chalk whatever and transfer it into the sip of the the vine so if you put a lot of chemical for example on your soil you kill these mushrooms mm. uh, and you kill the worms and you whatever and then you you don't have any contacts uh, and uh, you just get uh, hydroponic uh, farming uh, like the right. uh, dutch tomatoes uh, you're maintaining <laughs> the green. ecology basically sorry you're maintaining the ecology and yeah. so that creates a, a different set of nuance than yeah, if yeah, you have yeah. sort of a generic yeah. well what impact on your world is climate change having uh, and acid rain and all of the things that are, you know, I mean, when you say that the rain is the same all around the world, it is, but there's certain parts. But it's actually parts not, because there are certain parts where the rain is more acidic than well, it is yeah, in other areas. You know, well, uh, uh, the, 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 the acidity uh, of the rain, I, I, we don't really care about. Uh, mm -hmm. But climate change, that's for sure. And I have my very personal experience about uh, my first, my really first vintage uh, when I've joined the family company, that was uh, 1982. And uh, since the beginning of the 80s until nowadays, grape picking season is just three weeks earlier. Fascinating. That's a fact. Huh. That's a fact, mm -hmm. uh, of We're course. Uh, and the big concern uh, is not really the climate change because, you know, anyway, a vine is a Mediterranean plant. Uh, mm -hmm. So even if it gets a little bit warmer, it won't affect us. Okay, the, I would even say, on the contrary, mm -hmm. uh, the quality could be better. The concern is uh, how quick it's coming. Uh, we, you know, when we plant mines, it's for 40, 50 years. So that means that nowadays we are trying to anticipate what's going on with the climate in 50 years from here. Right. And uh, that's uh, not easy, of course. Of uh. course not. Well, so also we talked a little bit off air about you integrating biodynamic mm -hmm. uh, grape growing into your domains. Why? Why do you want to do that? Well, it's... Uh, it's just because it's the next step, you know. Uh, well, for people who don't know what biodynamic wine growing is, can you explain it a little bit? Well, uh, biodyna biodynamic, uh, you use all the forces of the nature, uh, inclusively the, the moon attraction and so on. We, in and a lot of people in the States call it like voodoo wine growing because you're sort of using you know, sorcery and witchcraft and no, that no, kind no, of no, stuff. No, not at all, not at all. Jean-Claude, are you a witch? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm just trying to find out. No, no I, I, think, a lot uh, right. I, I think people can easily deal with, uh, for example, uh, homeopathic, uh, mm -hmm. and it's, it, it's the same. Uh, right. It's just the homeopathy to, to the vineyards, mm -hmm. uh, the same effect. Huh? So what does it take to integrate that into your current process? Uh, it uh, it will change a little bit uh, in that side that we you need to to work uh, for example if you consider the moon itself uh, mm -hmm. the attraction uh, then you you need to organize uh, all your process uh, towards this. Uh. Of based course, on the calendar, and, right? And sometimes, to be honest, uh, you have also a very practical and uh, 
breakdown. Huh? You cannot always do like this. Huh? <laughs> I need to interrupt. But what? What are we drinking? Oh, yeah. This is yeah. awesome. Please. But I, we should say that uh, Jean-Claude's wines are distributed by Hop and Vine. I, I'm late on schedule. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> you are. But what are we drinking? This is great. Here, Andy, will you want to put your face in front of the mic and tell us what we're drinking? Yeah. So that's... Uh, oh, sorry. The Grand Cru Steinet, Riesling, yeah. 2014. 2014. Yeah. And just before we talk about the wine, you, if you... Okay, you cannot see it on air, but... <laughs> If but I can see it. I can see yeah. it too. I'm the only one who counts. Yes. So. Uh, we are pretty silly because uh, on the front label, the grape varietal isn't mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only on the back label as a technical uh, information. Uh, mm-hmm. That is purposeful, I take it. That's for purpose, of course. But yeah. isn't, and I may be wrong about this, but isn't there something about the bottle shape that speaks to the kind of wine that it is? Well, or the region? Of, of course, of course. Uh, the the, the Alsatian uh, bottle shape, it's uh, the traditional Rhine Valley uh, right. bottle, like the Bordeaux bottle is... Mm-hmm. Uh, a certain shape. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But to come to this wine, uh, it's definitely a Grand Cru. If you could see the color... Uh, well, we can see the color. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yellow color. And then you have something uh, that you can see on... On the, on the side of the glass as if you turn slightly the, your glass mm-hmm. after a few seconds uh, yeah. moments you can see the little tears showing up right uh, and uh, so that already shows a texture uh, mm. that the wine has texture and to come back to terroir to make the link to the terroir you know by tasting a wine everyone goes after the flavors but uh Flavors is very complicated because uh, each of us has another level of perception of a certain molecule of flavor. Mm -hmm. So we don't speak the same language at all. But then there is another sense that you can use and which is more related to terroir and that's the tactile sense, the touching. I mean, if I tell you in any kind of language uh, this piece of wood is thick or this paper is thin. You, you can imagine you, it. You see what I mean. Yes. Uh, if I see, if I say, okay, the wine smells after I don't know grapefruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you never tasted grapefruit, uh, you cannot uh, make the relation. Uh, and uh, the sense of the tactile sense is uh, very very important to to enter to the terroir world. For example. This is uh, the Steinert, means stony place. Mm-hmm. It's a limestone, and by a limestone, you have always a feeling of something creamy. I don't say sticky, but with a kind of viscosity. Uh, that's uh, the character of uh, limestones. If you have a granite, for example, you get something more vibrant, vibrant, uh, not so, not so thick, not so flat. Uh, and uh, okay, you can you can go very far. Why is that? Right. Well, this is just because of the constituents of the wines. Huh? Uh, a limestone, uh, by its by the constitution of the soil, uh, is able to fix uh, a, a huge amount of uh, minerals huh? because uh, it's a little bit technical, but. Uh, the, the humus complex is electronegative. Uh, this sounds very complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't you want to spoil to this for you. I knew all this. Okay, okay. 
And uh, then there is a lot of room on the little elements to fix uh, positive, electropositive uh, minerals like yeah. uh, CA, uh, calcium, mm -hmm. or uh, magnesium, or copper, or whatever. Uh, and all together makes that, let's say, that the, the soil and after that the sip uh, gets much richer with more minerality and so on. I think we just had an object lesson and why I did not do well in chemistry. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so what you know makes... What? Wait. Nick, we're going to have to take a break. Oh, right now? Yep, where's Jack? Jack's like, maybe. All right. How well, about one more question and then okay. we can take a break. What makes this a Grand Cru? What makes the Grand Cru? First, uh, the Grand Cru is a place. Mm -hmm. uh, you need... Uh, it's uh, strictly delimited... Uh, uh, legally deli uh, delimited and uh, once again uh, to get a Grand Cru uh, the producer needs to do uh, enough efforts to get the influence of the soil in the wine it's what I explained just before right but then there is uh, in, in all the process there is there are several levels of quality control already outside in the vineyards mm -hmm. uh, for example you have to respect a certain density of stocks by hectare uh, as more as possible. Uh, there are some picking regulations. For example, even if on our estate we all our grapes are handpicked, but uh, it's we are not obliged. Uh. Right. But for Grand Cru, for Grand Cru, Grand Cru needs to be handpicked okay. uh, by law and so on. And uh, after that, in during the winemaking process, there are a couple of. Uh, quality official quality controls yeah okay great all right, right well, well uh i want to make sure well i just want to make sure that we um uh andy where are jean-claude's wines found in the dc area oh my goodness <laughs> well we were going to do one more wine so can we do that after the break we, we can do that and then we can just all right, we can talk about that then. okay why don't we take a quick break when we come back we'll do the last wine and uh, say goodbye to Jean-Claude. This is David and Nikki Nellis. We'll say au revoir. Okay, you au can say au revoir. Arrivederci. And then we're going to get into vinegars. I'm okay. very excited with Lindera Farms. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast. We'll be right back. We're back on Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David Nicky Nellis. 
talking to you from our Glaston studio in the fabulous Line Hotel here in Washington. The Out ultra, to the world. We ultra, are global. Ultra. Can yeah. you hear me in Namibia? Can you hear me I in South Africa? Can we just get into it? I just want to know if I can be heard. Okay. Somebody tell me. I, uh, there are four people in here. We can all hear you. <laughs> no, I meant out there in the world. Oh, okay. Not here. Well, you, they can't respond back. I know my wife can hear me. Okay. I hear you. Trust me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so, do you want to introduce our guests who are in studio with us? Uh, well, uh, Jean-Claude Riflet is the proprietor of Domaine Riflet. It's a 400-year-old traditional um, uh, family wine business in Alsace. And we've been talking about everything from the, the, the impact of the soil to the impact of the human being on, on winemaking. Uh, and wh- what are we chasing now? Your Pinot Noir. Tell us about uh, it. I would say before, an Alsatian red wine. An Alsatian red wine. Right. Possibly it is Pinot Noir. <laughs> is the grape Pinot Noir? Sure. Is yeah. it a mix? No, it's no, a no. blend. No, no, no. no. In, straight in grape. In Texas, uh, Pinot Noir is the only red wine, uh, red grape, uh, which can be used for red wines. Okay. So, if you have a red Alsace, mm-hmm. it's automatically Pinot Noir. Okay, but you were just saying we were talking, and we really have to wrap it up with you because I know you have to go. We were talking about how climate change is affecting blends that you find that you're doing more of them, which is only interesting because I feel like um, single uh, single vineyard wines are so sort of hot right now. You know, people want to know that like a wine comes from just one terroir patch. Yeah, and uh, you know, once again, regarding uh, toward uh, global warming, mm-hmm. uh, today, for example, to express uh, red wine from Alsace, Pinot Noir is for sure the perfect tool. But who knows what's going on in 50 years ago from here? Uh, maybe it will be Syrah. I don't think, I don't hope that. <laughs> but uh, if you consider white wines, uh, in my opinion, it's going to be a no sense to... Uh, to stay stuck on the single grape varietals. And we should better go to through blends because then you can really bring the expression of the terroir uh, through with different tools, uh, the same terroir, but with different tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riesling, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, you can blend and so on. And finally, you know, if you buy, uh, if you sip a bottle of uh, Chateau Neuf du Pape, mm-hmm. Uh, you can get uh, 13 different grape varietals in your bottle. If you get a champagne, uh, you have maybe four different grape varietals, and so on, and so on, and so on. And a great wine is always a blend. With one exception, Burgundy. Yes. There we go. Okay, Andy, do you want to tell us quickly where we can find these beautiful wines? Absolutely. In Northern Virginia, the wines can be found at the wine outlets located in Great Falls, as well as Vienna. In Alexandria, at Unwind, both locations, as well as Planet Wine. In D.C., by the glass, at Rasika, as well as Curacao, Maxwell Park, Belga, and B2. In Virginia, by the glass, at the Lake Ann Coffee House and Wine Bar. And one more, two more quick stops in D.C., Cleveland Park Wine and Spirits, La Jambe, by the glass, as well as the Hillwood Museum Gardens. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, okay. first of all, I want to make sure people know that uh, Riflet is spelled R-I-E-F-L-E. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking right. for it. And I was just at Maxwell Park. Yeah, and it's, it's a blast. Fabulous. It's a blast. So thank you so much for joining us thank today. Um, and welcome to the States. Boom, I know you're here for two uh, weeks. Where are you headed next? He's like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Wherever they, they take wherever me. Wherever they tell you. Okay. I, 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 I 
I, I spend uh, the entire week here yep. in uh, DC, Virginia, and on Sunday I fly to Salt Lake City. And uh, my trip finished uh, the other week in San Francisco. Nice. Well, thank right. you for joining bon us. Bon voyage. Yes, merci, merci beaucoup. beaucoup. Merci. <laughs> thank you. All right, All right, Daniel. All right, so we have to say Daniel Lieberson is a former chef. Uh, I mean, that's generous. I remember. Well, it's and I'm a well, very generous I'm guy. Sorry, but we're going from wines to vinegar. I think okay, this makes right. a lot of sense, that's don't right. you? Sure. No. But your whole story uh, is great because you were in the kitchen, and then you, in, am I right? You inherited the family farm. Uh, my living parents would be very skeptical of that claim, but I, okay. I do run it, so that's. Well, I thought you murdered them in their sleep, but no, <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> I, I have to hope they never listen to this. <laughs> okay. So, how did you get in to vinegar? Uh, so, my, it's actually a pretty specific story. Um, I was working at a restaurant in uh, southwest Virginia called Townhouse, mm-hmm. and we were doing very high-end food in the middle of nowhere. I yeah. remember it very well. One of the dishes that we did was a uh, literal salad of flowers. And uh, every morning, we had some herbs in the garden that would flower, and I had to go and pick those. Uh, but then, insofar as the rest were concerned, I had to uh, basically drive around the entirety of Southwest Virginia, and nothing in Southwest Virginia is near the next thing. So if you want to go <laughs> and try and find, there's a field of flowers where you're going to pick from, or woods where you're going to find lichen, that's a 45-minute drive either way. So I would basically spend four hours before service, get, the prep would get started, just trying to pick things that I would then, at the end of the day... In other if, people's fields. Well, I mean, you know, they have guns, and that's awkward, but uh, <laughs> apart from that... Um, it was mostly the driving. And the interesting thing uh, in, in doing that is at the end of the day, you would take your prep. And because these things are flowers, these, these are not salad greens. They will not maintain two days. They're very delicate. Right. right? And it's all about the aroma. So the second they've, la- they've gone for a day, they're done. So insofar as trying to maintain them and maintain my own sanity in doing that every single day, I tried to figure out a way to preserve them. And so at first it became mead making and basically using the flowers to infuse them. And eventually, because it was a kitchen and not in front of the house, it became, okay, how do I make this into something we can utilize here? And vinegar was the, literally the next step after mead making. So when you started making the vinegars, just, I'm just sort of curious because we've just been talking about wine for the last half hour. I also have a deep hatred of all vineyards. That's, that's uh, what I'm uh, no, right. no. I just want their wine so I can make vinegar. <laughs> so... What is the importance of the grape juice product for your vinegar? So there is no grape juice product. There's no grape juice in yours. So every single thing that I do is built around the ingredient. To give a bit of a distinction, and I I don't want to malign in any way like winemaking versus cooking, but I'm a cook first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a very... Um, product-driven uh, 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 field, whereas, and I'm not saying that winemaking isn't, but the distinction is that there is also, as, as he mentioned in, in sort of the four points of terroir, one of those things is culture and tradition and how that impacts the process. So for me to do uh, a wild rose vinegar or for me to do a, um, a black locust vinegar or some of the, the more esoteric varieties that I do, or even the more approachable ones, which are like strawberry or, or ramp, right. the fact that there are not... Uh, 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 wines being put into these and being infused, but the fact that they're being made from the product themselves is, is sort of a result of my background in kitchens where you're trying to enhance the thing that you're working with okay. and not having to build to this is what a cremant is, this is the blend that you would do for burgundy, this is, you know, there's none of that binding me. Okay, so I, this is crazy because you and I have talked a thousand times, you've been on our other show before, I never realized that your products were made that when you say strawberry vinegar it's a vinegar literally made from strawberries strawberries. so was that a process that you saw someplace else or was this something that Uh, you created all of this has been uh, a a very financially painful trial by fire (laughs) no 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 Uh, it's it's been an interesting is that why you're wearing that barrel (laughs) 
Thank God this is radio. That's this what. no, this is actually something John Claude left. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, no, so insofar as like, okay, so let's try this now. Yes. Um, so it really is about sort of tailoring products to themselves. So this first one you're going to try is a wild rose vinegar. And these are a few different wild roses that go throughout Virginia. Some are invasive and some are natives. Uh, I try and stick with natives, but at the end of the day, I'm really just sort of seeking for flavor in this regard. But then mm-hmm. the base that... Uh, smells it, like booze. Yeah, well, so that, that's, that's very much but how rosy we're through. You're not going to get any alcohol off of it. It's entirely the sort Whoa. of winier notes that we associate with it. And that the way it comes good. through. And, and so think a little bit like... Um, this is Wild Rose Honey. I actually work with uh, an apiary in Harrisonburg called Golden Angels. They're a non-interventionist beekeeping operation. I, I cannot say enough nice things. If you ever see their stuff on the shelves, buy it out of obligation. What is their name? Golden Angels Apiary. Okay. Um, they do a Wild Rose Honey. Uh, I take that. I ferment that into a mead at the beginning of the summer. And then throughout the season, as rose comes in, I'm basically foraging them and incorporating them in. And then I'll take the previous year's vinegar and inoculate it at the same time. So you'll basically get a lot of different uh, rose components that are all sort of trapping the new rose flavors into it. And what you get as a resulting flavor is not I did not juice roses and make that into a wine as that is not to my knowledge physically possible how do you do it <laughs> but wait when you say mead yeah I assume you're talking about the initial steps in the vinegar or is yes. that a, right yes. so yeah. it's not a separate product to, to, to back up a bit vinegar is the uh, uh, tertiary fermentation or it's just a secondary fermentation of sugar so you have sugar then that sugar is consumed by yeast and made into ethanol and carbon dioxide that's alcohol right okay your, uh, the fermentation that will happen after that is if you introduce an acetobacterial colony. Uh, that's the uh, bacteria that consumes ethanol and then turns that into acetic acid, the tang that we know from vinegar, and once again, carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So what I'm left with, so what I'm doing basically, uh, rather than doing what most vinegar producers will do, which is basically take the second stage uh, process and say, we have a wine, and now let's make that into a vinegar, or doing what is more common with a lot of flavored vinegars, which is actually taking a finished vinegar and infusing it with a flavor. Right. I'm actually starting from the base product and saying, okay, let's get let's take a look at what the best strawberries that we can get as an input are, and then work from there to make a vinegar. Because like with cooking, if you start with a really bad base, or if you can't verify what the very first ingredient that goes into something is, you're never going to be completely certain about how what you're, it is. Exactly. Well, the quality. Yeah. About volume. I mean, these bottles are what four, five ounces. Uh, two hundred milliliters. So that's six point. All right, six ounces. Seven. So, how many strawberries do you need to make that bottle of vinegar? A lot. <laughs> so, well, not not an individual bottle because obviously there are there are certain capacities that I try and maintain. So for fifty gallons, that's four hundred and eighty was the last batch for for, for about five hundred pounds. Uh, of, of strawberries to, to, to get you the better part of 50 gallons and that's you know well, so depends on the year too. 10 pounds a gallon? Okay. Basically. Th- it's not it's not efficient. Oh. I think we should sort of say though you offer a wide variety I mean how many varieties are you doing right now? I've made, on any given day. Uh, from the beginning of winter I've made 52. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are currently at I believe 12, 29 or 30 on the website. Because a lot of it is seasonally based. It's seasonally based. There are, there, are, there are definitely like there are supply constraints on things. I, I there's Some of these things that I forage are like wood violets for example. To, 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 to make a wood violet vinegar I can make five gallons a year so this is part of our reserve collection. Uh, basically a very small batch that I do. Um, five pounds which is basically like a large Cambro, I can't visualize. It's a podcast. Right. Um, uh, but, it's about uh, this big. Right. <laughs> um, 
trying to do that is uh, literally backbreaking work. Like I have to, I'm, I'm sure I should be putting this in my insurance application every year, but uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a physical constraint. I can only pick so many of them. Sure. Um, and then for things like strawberries, uh, I work with Agroberry down in Mechanicsville, Virginia. So for me, being able to turn to them and say like, hey, how many do you have? How many can I buy? That's a much easier physical transaction. Yeah. Well, what about ramps? Are you buying, are you? No, that is a forageable. You're and foraging really, them. Yeah, and actually it's really interesting because when you see, uh, so like let's say you go to a farmer's market, you'll see the full ramp, bulb and leaf. Right. I don't do that. I, I make sure that these are a perennial grower and spring uh, spring ephemerals, which, which ramps are, uh, uh, being a lily, um, they are slow to regrow. Uh, okay. they, they don't. They don't. Uh, they, they don't pollinate very well. They don't seed very well. They. They just. It's these colonies have been developing for literally hundreds of years when you find them in in, in mass quantities, and so when you uproot them, you're not only destroying hundreds of years of colony. You're right. also guaranteeing that it's not coming back. Right. So what I do is I'll go around with a box cutter, a very sharp knife, and I'll actually take the leaves off from the base, so the bulb stays in the ground, and mm-hmm. we see regrowth every single year. And actually, we've been. I've been trying to transplant uh, bulbs onto our uh, bulbs and seeds onto our property, and and we've actually finally been somewhat successful. And when I turn to a lot of other people people who've been trying to do this for, for, for farms and for more uh, traditional agricultural pursuits, they're not having the same luck. And I think part of the, 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 the reason to a certain degree is that the idea essentially is non-interventionism with Lindera. So even when I am foraging on our property, or on, and I should say, this is the garden part of the property versus the, the wild uh, part of the property where I'm foraging because I want to not have to get torn up by thorns every time I do this, but um, goals. Right. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, Insofar as you know, this is this this goes. Part of it, I think, is uh, when you have a resilient colony and you have a, a sustainable practice, you're going to get to work with these things more and more often. And sure. as you've tried with the ramp vinegar, it's every bit as potent as a ramp itself in terms of like how much flavor is there. No, it's absolutely potent. I mean, we have a variety of vinegars in the house. I mean, we've been using them for years. I think, I think what might be more interesting to people is, I mean, first of all, how you make your vinegars and how you do all the foraging and work for them. But how to use them? You know, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm drinking a rose vinegar right now. I mean, I could put a spritz of bubbly water in this yeah. and Absolutely. So drink it. Just the other day, it's actually on our Instagram right now. Literally, just equal parts wild rose vinegar and sugar, like 50 grams, 50, gram, 50 milliliters. And mm-hmm. then uh, slicing strawberries thinly and macerating them in it. Um, it takes on all the flavor. Of the, the berries take on all the flavor of the rose. The syrup you can use for as a shrub, basically. Sure. And then you have the berries for any kind of pastry application. And they're phenomenal. And it's actually, I've been playing around with this with freaking Driscoll strawberries just for, for research, right? Uh, just to see how that works for the website because we have about 45 different recipes on there uh, and it's growing. Um, but so for application's sake, you know, just really, really simple stuff that you would not think you get that much yield out of a product from, you will get with these. Well, because um, I think people, I, I mean, I when I first started using your vinegars, I used them as a finishing product. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think to like, if I'm cooking something, I think, oh, I'll pour a little bit of that over roasting vegetables or if I'm doing, you know, some sort of beef or even mm-hmm. a roasted chicken, course, you know, a yeah. little... Because the fragrance of your vinegars is so intoxicating. Yeah. If you pour a little of the rose vinegar over it or the ramp vinegar over a chicken after it's done roasting, when you bring it out, yeah. that's what everybody smells. 100%, yes. So uh, it's in, well, cause it, this is this is a bit of a counterintuitive comparison, but I think that our frame of reference with, with finishing vinegars and stuff like that is usually balsamic, right? And balsamics are very thick, very viscous. They've been, they've been aged for a long and time. And sweet. Yes, exactly. With and these, I say that negatively. Like it's mm, yeah. it has become increasingly... Sweet, yeah. and I don't necessarily want that there's a, in my flavor. There's a long story about sort of the adulteration of balsamics as they have come into the United States, which, uh, regrettably, I am not uh, a nearly expert enough. Well, uh, that's in. okay. But um, 
Uh, part of why they are so sweet is because there are things that happen to a lot of them after they come stateside. And the American palate. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's entirely intentional. It is not mm-hmm. simply about cutting. But um, one of the things that I think is so interesting about these is I, I will occasionally describe these to people and basically say, look, think of it a little bit more like a perfume. These are about their aromatics, right? In the same way that when we're tasting these wines and we're talking about terroir, what we're really talking about is sort of the aromatics that we're taking in from them, right? right. They have similar levels of acidity, similar levels, similar levels or no levels of residual sugar. But like with, with, with these vinegars, think of it in the same way. So uh, if you're putting it on to say, uh, uh, you know, a roasted piece of meat or vegetable coming out of the oven, right? As it hits that hot object, it's going to evaporate. And it's essentially those, those aromatics are going to be exposed to absolutely everybody around them. So it's a finishing touch uh, in that you don't really want to, you don't want to cook them in at the beginning of the process, which is what a lot of vinegars would have you do. Sure. But a lot of that is shaped around the idea. And this is a bigger point that I make that most vinegar, especially for us Americans is garbage. Right. So we're so used to having to like batter it and beat it into the background of any given dish that we're working with that, you know, it's not intuitive to be able to work with it. Well, because most vinegars are the only reason to add them is to add the acid. Exactly. That's all it is. It has, it really has no real context other than that in most dishes. Yes. Unless you're talking about more about things today Mm -hmm. where, you know, there is better product available and like yours, obviously, and it gives you a whole new range of adding these products to your cooking. It's a not too well kept secret in kitchens that the determining outcome in a lot of occasions is not uh, for for how good a a good dish is that you're trying in a restaurant is not necessarily the technical capacity of the guy in the kitchen as much as his ability to source properly. Of course. And and, and I think that that's something that has somewhat translated to in-home kitchens and and behind the bar, but I don't think it's quite gotten to the point where we see it with things like vinegar, right? So we think about it with produce, we think about it with dairy, we think about it with beef. We don't take a look at our pantry. I know, but access has totally changed. I mean, in the last 15 years, the access to... Ramps is an incredible example. I mean, 15 years ago, who the hell had ramps in their own (laughs) kitchen? I mean, where were they at the farmer's markets? And if they were, did anybody really know what to do with them? I mean, the finer kitchens had access and therefore they can incorporate them into their menus. But access today, well, in the cities, I mean, we're in D.C. There are amazing farmer's markets here. Uh, You're at Fresh Farm Markets. Um, You know, the access allows us, it doesn't mean we have to cook like a top chef, Mm -hmm. but it does allow us the ability to work with pristine products, which is really important. What do people do? I mean, it's it's not unlike wines or beer or anything else that people who don't really know anything about, they've been, they've been, Using the same... Think lemon or lime. I, I, I always tell people kind of think uh, lemon or lime, but more complex, more aromatic. So um, if you're working... I do a cherry blossom vinegar. It's a sour cherry wine that I basically age uh, a year. And then when the next bout of uh, Akami blossoms come in, I use those like hops. And I, I essentially gives it some sort of a cherry pie flavor on top of what is a relative, uh, a fairly complex uh, uh, red wine flavor that develops in the wine itself. Where would you put a cherry and lemon? Right. That's essentially what this that, what that product answers. And then once you start to get it's like anything, right? Like the first time that you worked with with with, with any cut of meat, you and you have a knife in your hands and you're staring at this like piece of this sort of like amorphous skeletal blob on a cutting board and you're going, What the hell do I do with this thing? And then once you've done it enough times, say you, let Nikki cook it, no. Yeah, I mean you're <laughs> talking to the wrong person when yeah, it comes okay, to fair. cooking. Let's um, just say that. The first time you look at a microphone and it's on a butcher's top block with an <laughs> oh wait, no, it's not. Um, hey, can we try this strawberry? Yeah, of course, I would love to get a taste of it. And that. this is this is another point to that too. 
One of the interesting things about uh, so, uh, strawberries and the way they come through is that they have uh, anywhere between, or, or, or I should say, uh, about five different types of acidity that are naturally present. Uh, and so, in so far as how it becomes a vinegar, one, one of no, Here, okay, you, you, you know, <laughs> um, microphones don't move with me. Uh, <laughs> Thank so, you. In so far as how it ferments, one of the really interesting things is that it actually captures the fresh aromatics of the berry. Ooh. So, well, don't hit that heavy. No, no, no. I mean, I it mean is, that in a good way. It is probiotic. Uh, you will get all the uh, uh, sort well, of... I was going to ask. So it is a fermented product. It is a fermented product. I do not pasteurize. I do not filter. Uh, that can mean it can be a giant pain in the ass for me because occasionally it's just going to continue to ferment as long as uh, it feels like and but then once I have to it, wait. But, but once it's bottled. Yeah. Once it's bottled, it'll maintain. I, 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 and you'll actually see on the bottle, uh, we did have to... I've, I eventually put a little thing on there that says, please keep right. in the refrigerator after opening. Not because it has to be, but because that will prevent any... So there are wild yeasts that can still be present. Bacteria. Shake, uh, well, wild yeasts and, and acetobacteria. These are the only two that you'll really find in these. And and they're they're dormant, but with enough oxygenation and heat, they can start to reactivate, which means mm-hmm. basically that you're making in the bottle champagne. Uh, by the way, fun fact, original shrubs, not the uh, contemporary version, were actually a tertiary fermentation of this. So you would incorporate a little bit of sugar back into a acetified wine. The yeast that were present there would consume the sugar. You would have a little bit of sweetness and you would have a carbonated beverage. That is a true shrub. Okay. The new version is actually something that is made uh, uh, was actually made to counteract lime pricing uh, about three or four years ago it became popular because vinegar is very cheap or well was was cheap yeah <laughs> so you came along my friend well so but I think what's interesting real is pricing yeah but <laughs> given all the there is so much health benefits to drinking vinegar and that's become a whole other market yes and how does that affect what you're doing is that for better or for worse I, it's funny. It it probably should be affecting me better. I am. Uh, I have uh, truthful Tourette's. Um, I've only ever seen two peer-reviewed uh, uh, studies on the health impacts of uh, vinegar. Um, I believe they're both from Johns Hopkins, and they were regarding kidney and li- uh, liver health, mm-hmm. um, and it showed a positive correlation. Um, but don't fermented products in general. Someone can double check me on that. I'm okay, sourcing it wrong. But don't fermented products in general help with your overall gut health? The the science on this is is emerging to the best that I understand. Again, I do not have the academic right. You're not a PhD. <laughs> we get it. We understand. But I'm just curious. Just I mean, make we, it up like I do. No, you, I mean, you would think all those years of uh, uh, playing surgeon uh, or right. oh, what was the game? Uh, <laughs> doctor. Uh, doctor. Yes, and trying to remove those things would have qualified. Oh, let's me, play that no. tonight. Okay. Uh, thank MIT. You. One, okay. Um, <laughs> you started it, dude. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is the first time I felt awkward as a gay guy in a conversation. <laughs> um, no, so so. Uh, I mean, Daniel, you can join us if you want to. I'm going to leave now. Okay. <laughs> uh, just parking's a thing. It's wait nothing. a minute. <laughs> no, oh wait, you can be the usher. That's. <laughs> okay. Uh, we were talking about something, and I. We were talking about so the health or what? Yes, about the health, health, health benefits <laughs> of vinegar. And uh, our understanding, or well, my so understanding, is that there that are. But I think I think a lot of it is. I don't want to dismiss it as holism at all. What I would say is what we are starting to recognize, and I think what is going to become more and more pronounced over the next decade or so, is our understanding that over the past 50 or 60 years, we've been eradicating our internal microbiomes because we have been doing everything in our power, basically, to eradicate bacteria. Exactly. And the whole time, I mean, it is interesting to see, you you hear these little snippets about uh, peanut allergies and uh, sort of how the science on allergenic exposure with infants is actually getting earlier and earlier and earlier, whereas once upon a time, you know, you would wait until one or two or three years. 
Right. And that's now too late. What we're starting to, I think, understand is actually like, oh, no, that is actually about what your your, your microbiome and what is being passed down from a mother to a baby is, is, is or a mother to an infant, excuse me, is uh, uh, capable of handling. I think the same thing is true of a lot of probiotics. I think the same thing will be proven true. Mm-hmm. But I am always kind of careful to basically say, look, I, I don't want, I, at the end of the day, my again, my background being a cook, I want this to be something that you want to cook with. I want this right. to be something that you want to enjoy. And I don't want this to be, you know, what health food was for a lot of us in the 90s, which was like an obligatory sort of self-punishment thing. I think that has really changed because now it is a good confluence of a lot of ex-cooks, a lot of ex-chefs who want to make something that is healthy for people. Um, but that is an ancillary benefit to wanting to make something that is very good for people. And tasty. Right. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. Um, well, so what can we look forward to this summer? Like what's cooking up at the farm right now? So I've been working on a couple interesting little things. There's a soy sauce in the mix, but uh, if it doesn't work out, we're going to pretend this conversation never happened. Um, <laughs> we're also, I'm also interestingly working on a soy vinegar, which is a derivative of that. Um, been playing around with a couple Both more. Both fermented products. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, working on a couple, uh, well, working on a rice vinegar, specifically an amazake vinegar with, uh, uh, these are all grains and the beans actually are both coming from uh, Next Step Produce out of Newburgh, Maryland. So the idea is basically I really want to focus on the bay specifically because there have been a ton of native grains uh, or native rices, excuse me, that have grown around the bay uh, 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 since time immemorial. Uh, we don't utilize them. I'm, I'm currently working with a couple, um, these, are, these are Japanese varietals that are being grown there, but the idea is eventually to see if I can't get some segue over to uh, these uh, native rice crops. But um, cool. that's, that's what's working right now. And then other things will, I'm sure, emerge. I'm actually talking to uh, Little Wild Things Farm here in D.C. They're amazing. They're they incredible. They do beautiful and, things. Um, and they do all, like, you won't have to be on the ground foraging. Ex- they yeah, do no, it that, for you. She, she's doing violas. And I actually, she gave me a little packet the other day. We were both doing the DuPont Circle Market together. And so right now, um, we're, I'm doing a little test batch of viola vinegar. And I'm hoping to reach out to her and figure out, you know, what other ones she grows throughout the year. And so I'm essentially going to be her um, you know repository of damaged flowers basically which is great <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, I think it'll be a lot of fun and so that'll that'll be great for my spine that's what oh, we are for, for Home food. Depot yes. uh, so let's talk about where people can find your vinegars I mean lots of chefs around town use them bar, um, mixologists around the town use them too yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Columbia Room right now if you're uh, looking to try vinegar slash get wasted uh, that is a <laughs> fantastic and classy place to do it JP Featherston is a magician he is um, uh, I would also take a look over at pineapples and pearls or uh, roses. They they, they they carry them in both. Well, um, is Morgan using it upstairs? Morgan absolutely is right, right. here at the line. Uh, and if you uh, they actually uh, Rake's Progress in the uh, kitchen is using it too. So you'll find it all throughout that menu there. Mm-hmm. Um, Spike is absolutely awesome, and I'm actually so stoked that it's on the menu. I bet. Um, uh, but then, uh, uh, you know, if you ever want to pick up a bottle yourself, A, if you're in D.C., you can find me over at DuPont Circle on Sundays. You can find me in Silver Spring on Saturdays. And you can find me drunkenly wandering around uh, Logan Circle on Mondays. And, uh, no, uh, uh, and then... Um, TMI, yeah, TMI. It's better than the hookers that used to be there, right? <laughs> that, that was uh, what Anthony Bourdain would have called uh, soul. Um, <laughs> uh, no, and then the other option, of course, if you want to pick up a bottle yourself and you're not in the DC listening area, uh, linderafarms.com. Not only do I have every variety listed on there, I also have some of the reserve batches. So once you've bought a bottle, turn back around, take a look at the site. They'll all be available for you. And then uh, we've got about, uh, we're up to 45, 48, I think, uh, somewhere in between there on recipes from different chefs, bartenders. Uh, there's some probiotic uh, recipes in there as well. So Great. a lot of different stuff to play around with on there. Excellent. All right. Can you give your website, please? Linderafarms.com. All right. Thank you so much. Much for joining easy. us today, and everything was delicious. <laughs> the alcohol helps, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we didn't have that much alcohol. I'm pretending I did. Okay, you they could, can't see us. No, they can't see you. You had a lot. To I drink. have a, a bag of Cremant IV directly into my phone. Okay. <laughs> 
I was wondering what the hospital bed was right. for. <laughs> well, we want to thank everybody for joining us today. We certainly had a delicious show. Yeah, listen, uh, do we know what's happening next week? We do. Actually, next week, we have Ralph Brennan from New Orleans. He is coming okay. into town. From Brennan. Uh, yes. I, he, I know, you totally got robbed. <laughs> yeah, you just had Jean-Claude yeah. reflay. But uh, no, yeah, next week. with this French guy. I want Ralph Brennan. No, Ralph Brennan is joining us next week. Uh, they are celebrating an anniversary of the New Orleans restaurants, and he's coming up here to celebrate with us. I'm I've really actually eaten there. I'm looking forward to it. Finally, some famous restaurant that I've actually eaten in. Okay, all right. Well, so anyway, we want to thank all of our guests for joining us today, and we want to thank you, too. We hope everybody has a delicious week. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., Full-service radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full-service radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.